Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Justin Zaluski, Director of Product Strategy and Design at Studio Science. And we're going to talk about designing services versus products today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. On board, engage and nurture your customers as well as marketing leads. To follow the best practices, download our free printable email planning worksheets at useless.com slash worksheets. Hi, Justin. Hey, Jane. It's great to be here. We're very excited to dive into service design again today. But before that, tell us more what you do at Studio Science and what, what's your background story? Definitely. So I lead our product and service design practice at Studio. And Studio Science is a design and innovation firm. We help businesses design with people as opposed to for people. So we'll talk a little bit more about co-creation later, I'm sure. We do a lot of work with large enterprise companies. And so a lot of times they're in a place where they've enjoyed long-term success, but what got them to where they're at won't get them to that next stage. And a lot of times, more often than not, the way these large companies are set up doesn't allow them to innovate well because they're not built to move quickly. And so when we speak with the people that are responsible for advancing customer experience at an organization like this, you know, if we're partnering with an internal UX team or whatnot, they can be very frustrated. Sometimes they're feeling hopeless because they've been banging their head against a wall trying to make progress in their organization. And that's where we come in. We can act as their modern design team from the outside. And, and partner with them to help them make progress on the inside. So we work with organizations to build an understanding of customer needs, business goals, and then we prototype and test solutions, which is no, no surprise to us as designers, but depending on the organization we're working with and their design maturity might be a new thing for them. So you've been with a studio science for over 10 years, which is impressive. But before that, what's your origin story? Yeah, so I got my start in graphic design, actually. And so I graduated from college with a degree in graphic design and, and quickly found that I was more drawn to some of the more technical and digital sides of things. So I got in more into web design, a little bit into development as well. And it naturally kind of led me into product design and UX design. And I started to build up a portfolio of freelance and, and contract work on that side of thing of connecting with clients that needed you know, their first MVP version of their app designed and did that, you know, built up a, a freelance business for a while. And that's actually how I got connected with Studio Science, did some contract work for the studio for a while before coming on full time. And uh, I mean, one of the things that I loved about freelance work is getting to connect with clients directly and, you know, that that business side of, of design as well. And it's, you know, continues to be exciting to me today to kind of just continue that journey as a part of the studio. Do you find yourself uh, these days working more with your clients or more like managing designers internally? Like where does the majority of your day fall into? Yeah, it depends on the day because yeah, it's it's both responsible for both. There are, uh, I mean, one of the nice things is, and this is, I think, one of the most satisfying things of leading teams is as you invest more and more in in your team and, and growing and coaching people, they become that much more adept at 
working with clients and consulting with them and, and managing that on their own. And so it's cool to see them, you know, take that and, and run with it, where at that point it requires a little less direct management. I'm going to ask a provoking question. So like, feel free not to answer. Do you feel like in your work, uh, you're doing more of a tried and tested things for each of your clients, but the problem is more in understanding their needs and communicating? Or is it truly like overcoming UX challenges every time and everything being so unique? Like, what do you feel uh, one or the other? I'll say for the most part, where we typically start is the former, where it's, you know, we, we have to start with getting to a, a good baseline where, where there are some things that are, have already been proven in the, the UX world and just in the, the industry that the, the client is in. A lot of times the challenge is not the UX part of it, at least not in the way that we typically think of UX the challenge is in the change management and the people side of things of like, how do we make this happen? You know, even if we know what we need to do. And so I think change management is one of those, you know, kind of invisible parts of the UX process that we don't learn about in, in school. And uh, we just get more and more exposure to and experience with in our careers. So that's where that, that challenge ends up coming in. And then as, as we get the ball rolling with that, that's where I think the ladder comes in where we get into some more, interesting and unique UX challenges of like you know, this kind of thing. There's not like a, a tried and true example that we can point to as an analogous experience, like right off the bat. And we've got to, you know, be a little more exploratory and diverge some more to figure out what's going to work here. So when your clients come to you, do they already know, like, because the fascinating part is that you can, you, you had both the, the product design and the service design together. So when they come to you, uh, do they already know, like, we, we need uh, design here and services there, or do you get to differentiate them, like, as you go? Sometimes they do in, in organizations that have a greater design maturity, especially a lot of times we partner with great internal UX and CX teams and like they, they know what's needed and they can differentiate between like we really what we need is, is service design or we need this kind of qualitative research. But sometimes what's most important for them to know is not necessarily the, the right design terminology or, or practices. And it's just that they've felt a pain as the business and they, they know what problem needs to be solved. So they just know that there is a customer adoption problem and that we've heard feedback that our onboarding process, for example, is, is a real struggle for customers or that you know our overhead costs to support this product are rising because there's all these issues and it's just it's not meeting customer needs and that's really the most important thing for them to know because we can come in and then you know help them out and they don't necessarily need to know the terms you know product design or service design but they know what the issue is and they know what they need help with is it always about adoption or has it ever happened that somebody came to you in like to investigate later stages of the customer life cycle where they need more help. Customer adoption is, is a popular one, of course, but we, we also work with a lot of clients that have already solved a lot of the customer adoption issues. And now they're trying to change some of the behavior, you know, within the, the product. And that could be, they're trying to shift behavior to more of a self-serve kind of model where they're trying to lower their own overhead costs while also reducing friction for customers, or they are actually trying to reduce the burden employees. So sometimes it becomes more about the employee experience than the customer experience. So, you know, like, how do we make things better for our employees without detrimentally 
impacting the customer experience. In our conversation today, let's focus on the adoption side because it's obviously an overwhelming focus for any software business these days. Maybe not any, but definitely primary. And where do you even start? Let's say a new client comes to you, they have certain adoption problems. What's that research phase that you do that's required so that you can actually map out the process where self-serve meets done for you, et cetera, et cetera? And this is one of the things that I like most about the the front end of a project and that research is just because it's going to be a little bit different every time. It's hard to just like package up so so neatly because depending on what the problem is and what the company is, we might take entirely different approaches. We definitely take more of a qualitative approach, you know, supplemented by quantitative data, but we love to talk to people. And so we tend to start with talking to the internal stakeholders. That helps us get kind of a, a good map and lay of the land of, you know, you know what departments are going to be really critical in this. And it helps us to kind of branch out and, and find where we need to explore more. And then we start to expand our circles into partner organizations. You know, if there are third parties that are part of the service and the journey that are also you know, stakeholders in, in their own way. And then eventually, of course, to customers and, and users and figuring out you know, what is their side of the experience. And that allows us to really map out the current state blueprint of, all right, here's what your customers are experiencing. Here's everything that your organization is doing to support their journey along this service. And then let's figure out you know, where are the opportunity areas along there? What, how is this affecting your business and what kinds of change are we trying to drive in the business? Do you have a framework, if you could share that, for figuring out customer pains as they go through the product adoption? We're not overly obsessed with frameworks, but the framework that I would say we tie most closely to for the question that you asked is jobs to be done. We're a big fan of jobs to be done. Saw that coming, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's gained good traction for good reason, I, I think, because it does such a good job of focusing on the change that customers are, are trying to make and it frames up their focus broadly enough that it isn't so you know narrowly tactical mm-hmm. and it still allows product teams to you know be very outcome focused and i should also clarify because there is this you know whole two schools of thought thing with jobs to be done we are much more on the jobs as progress side than the jobs as tasks but we know obviously like you know it's helpful to break things down more tactically at a certain point, but we do think of jobs to be done as the the change and the progress that customers are trying to make in their own lives. We actually had Bob Mesta a few months ago here in the show. I saw that, And then yeah. he was promoting his recent book, but the one that he recommended most for designers that I went after. So I, after the interview, I went and read that book. Uh, I think it customer side sales, or maybe I'm saying it wrong. We're going to dig that link out for the show notes was really it's a really really helpful book if you're trying to do that so i'm totally with you on on the framework so what you do is jobs to be done style interviews you dig like ask socratic questions five whys like what was happening was it like spring you were uh, moving offices things like that (laughs) i mean we believe in design research and and so part of that is really getting a sense for not just the the tactical things that somebody is doing within their interaction with a brand, but just really understanding like what else is happening in their life? What other context are they bringing to the experience? And so, I mean, part of that is also when we can 
meeting customers in their environment to understand, you know, we were working with a, a trucking company recently and actually like going to the fleet management center and seeing like, here's how they like manage all their, their fleets and their trucks and like how they schedule and like how, what's on paper where there are these binders and what's on the computer. And like, here's all the chaos that's happening in the background, like being in the environment helps us to understand their situation and their point of view so much more than if we are you know only conducting things over a zoom. So you mentioned that the deliverable of that stage is the blueprint of the current situation. And how does that look like in, in form of deliverables? Like what do you open Myra or FigJam and then draw up a chart or is it a spreadsheet? What do you ship? We're big Figma fans and you know FigJam is a part of that. We typically we will often use FigJam, I should say, as the collaborative part of that to start to build, to, to map out what that blueprint will be, and then end up representing it in Figma just for a little more control over you know, how that visual shows up. So it can be a lot of information to pack onto a blueprint, right? And so Figma ends up giving us a little more control there. But yeah, what the deliverable ends up looking like is at the base level, you know, we're mapping, it's all centered on the customer journey. And then we're adding those layers of what the organization is doing to support that journey. Here's how the capabilities map to it. One of the things I also love about the the blueprint and really any kind of like journey map visualization is that each one ends up looking a little bit different. There's always some different thing we want to emphasize that's different between each project. So some will emphasize, you know, what are the what are the channels that are being used at different stages of the journey? Some will emphasize departments. You know, really it ends up coming out of what are the main insights that we found during the research that we want to make sure we highlight in the visual. So that's one of the biggest strengths, I think, of visualizing things like that is not falling into a totally baked template, but pushing the template a little further each time. Is there anything that you are sharing publicly on this? Like, is there any client map available in public from your company or maybe in some other open resource online so that our listeners can go find it and get inspired? There are plenty of templates available and I've seen a lot of great ones. We do have our own, like I, I put one that kind of represents that base template that we usually start from. I put it up on the Figma community. So if you, you know, search for my name or Studio Science Service Blueprint on Figma community, you'll be able to find that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm always curious and encouraged to see just all the different ways people are iterating on the typical structure of a service blueprint. So once you have that, how do you find things that should be improved? What's the framework for analyzing that? Because there is no objective truth. There is obviously no software that can help you with that. How do you do that? Yeah, that's where it comes back to conversations and collaboration with the client. Because yeah, we will... We will never shy away from documenting, here's all the opportunities that we see where things could be improved and the impact that'll make either for the business or the customer or whoever. But obviously, like you can't do everything all the time. And so it comes down to prioritization. And it's, you know, what of these opportunities are going to make the biggest impact? What's the low hanging fruit versus what are the longer term strategic initiatives? So coming down to that, that prioritization, which is where it's really critical to to have those relationships built with uh, product management, design, and engineering, because everybody's going to you know offer their own perspective for what's going to map most closely to the organization's goals right now. You know, like what's what's going to help us hit our OKRs, and then also what's the large technical effort items 
in the list so that we can we can evaluate those. So you mentioned that most companies are leaning towards the self-serve model, so product-led growth, self-serve, etc. But there are some situations when it's just hopeless to make customers do something and when done for you works best. So how do you establish that balance? When do you know then when when to give up and when to keep pushing the self-serve thing or maybe match different fragments of this in the same journey? You're right. We've definitely seen more of a push for self-serve, especially over the last few years with you know, more of a need for, I hate to use this term, but digital transformation. You know, the, even the companies that have maybe lagged behind in that a little bit, there was more of a forcing function for that over the past few years in the pandemic. But you're right that at a certain point, like not, not everything can be self-serve and it's, it's important to know what can and what can't, or, you know, to put it another way, what are the impacts on the business and the customer of a self-serve model? And so that's where I think, you know, taking the service design mindset and, and an iterative approach of how do we prototype and how do we test these kinds of things is, is really important because there are a variety of different ways in which we could test, but there are ways to put together very relatively lean prototypes that would represent a self-serve experience and confirm, you know, here's how this, here's the feedback that we got on this from customers that have the perspective to know like what the 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 current manual processes versus self-serve here's the perspective that we got from internal stakeholders from the employees that are actually going to like carry this out and when we do that we uncover some really interesting things you know there are uh, employees that we would go in with the assumption that like hey they're going to be so excited that they don't have to do this anymore and they let us know like oh like hey sorry this is never going to work <laughs> like these are the <laughs> spots where like Customers need a lot of handholding. We act as very personal consultants in this time. And this is going to be something that's really difficult to cover digitally in a self-serve experience. And so that's the kind of stuff where the value of prototyping and testing really proves itself out because you can find that stuff out early rather than you know going through that whole process of building everything out and then finding it out too late or worse actually releasing it and then having that kind of negative effect on, on the uh, customer experience. What is your spectrum of different things you can be offering to your users during the onboard, uh, not to your users, to your customers' users during this adoption phase? And that ranges from, from the knowledge base towards videos, towards hands-on training, towards video training that's got to be swapped and then towards uh like done for you or maybe strategy so there's like a spectrum from from completely hands-on towards hands-off what are your favorite formats that you've seen work well yeah one of the things that we emphasize and i hesitate to ever say that something's universally true because it, it depends so much on who the customers are and who the client is in the industry but the the closest thing i can think of to that that applies to onboarding is how much it needs to be kind of multimodal, you know, that everybody's going to have different preferences for how they learn something for the first time uh, for their experience with the product. And so having different ways for somebody to onboard, for somebody to learn uh, a product. So be that, you know, video content and written knowledge base content. And, you know, there, there's also a customer service option. Having that that kind of flexibility ends up being really important. The other thing that we've found valuable in a variety of different contexts is to you know broaden our, our thinking in onboarding that it's not so linear as you know there's onboarding and then there's the you know 
experienced user <laughs> phase, right? Like there are people that don't use a tool for for months and they have to come back in and, and relearn or people that use it infrequently or people that uh, switch jobs, all these different kinds of things where it's so important to keep educational content, training material, all these things that we typically think of as the onboarding stuff, keep that available throughout their experience. We see when that goes wrong, how that negatively affects a, a user's ability to get value out of the product, especially when there's there's so many different users over a long period of time. And that knowledge uh, is really hard to, to pass on. I'm so glad that you've touched on this multi-modal thing because many times founders want to push the the one and the only single way of onboarding users. And that's just different for users with different levels of education and autonomy, I guess. Exactly. I mean, it's it's recognizing different learning styles, different levels of ability and access, uh, different you know demands on people's time. You know, not everybody has time to sit down and like spend an hour on a lesson. Um, so I think just recognizing that uh, that diversity in your audience base uh, is really important to be able to design a successful onboarding experience. How do you let people self-segment somehow really well? Because usually the onboarding flow is sort of a single orchestrated experience and you assume that something's happening and you kind of nudge or like inspire people along the way. But how do you offer those different tracks? And they can be completely different. Like one can be like, leave me alone. I'm going to do this myself in three days. Or like, uh, oh, please guide me through uh, with my account manager like now, like how do you offer people those options in a good way? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the the most important thing is to offer the options because, I, you know, I'm sure we've both <laughs> seen options where uh, a company, you know, usually intentionally does not offer the options where they want to drive a very specific behavior. And so it's, you know, for example, like if, if you need to return something on Amazon, it's nearly impossible to talk to a person about that or, you know, any, any variety of uh, companies following a similar playbook. And so I think the first step is just to, to figure out what options can we as an organization reliably deliver? You know, we realize that like not everything is, is possible, especially for an early stage company. You know, it might not be feasible to also set up like a call center where people can, you know, have white glove service. But to figure out you know, what, are, what are the options that we can offer to cover the most ground for our customers. And then I think there's a lot of just great best practices to follow in terms of the, the UI to show like, hey, you know, we know you're here for this reason. Here are your different options. You know, what, do you want to talk to somebody on the phone? Do you want to chat? Do you want to email? You know, and, and even there, like you've, you've already funneled into like a support experience. So that's one of the things that's you know, kind of part of core UX and UI design is just figuring out like how do we highlight these certain kinds of things and a big part of research is knowing when do our customers need these kinds of things. I have so, so many good questions for you now. <laughs> Ironically, in, in about 40 minutes, I'll be speaking to a fellow SaaS uh, founder and they've had amazing success at installing mandatory two-hour training calls for every new customer because they just figured that it doesn't work for them. So I guess every business is indeed unique. In their case, mandatory was the key to success. You mentioned channels. Is there any these days, like what's the sentiment? What channels seem to work best? Like phone versus in-app versus email and, you know, LinkedIn, direct messages, anything. 
Yeah, that, that's another one where I, I hesitate to prescribe one that, that really works best because we've seen, I mean, in some industries, it's all about, you know, e- email ends up being the most uh, effective or at, at the very least the most cost effective. And there are some where we've heard like, you know, we were working uh, real estate recently where they're like, nobody, nobody's going to read this email. You know, like everybody operates entirely on text messages, like SMS is really our channel where we got to communicate. So I hesitate to prescribe a, a channel universally, but I, I know that going back to the, the multimodal, that's where, and, and one of the things that I think is, is really consistent in services is just knowing that the same thing is not going to work for everybody. And you got to figure out like, what are the different ways that you're going to use multi-channel experiences, multi-channel communication to keep people engaged across that journey of your service. That is such a vague answer, but it is also very true. <laughs> like yeah. he told me that. Um, yeah. What are the best ways of testing your uh, service design prototype or the experience that you think uh, works well? Like how do you run it by a pilot group of customers? Yeah. And, and this is where, I mean, I think one of the biggest differences in the the mindset and and honestly the practice of designing for products rather than designing for services is recognizing that so much is happening outside of the screens that we design that we really got to go outside of our clickable prototypes right you know as product designers the clickable prototype is so often like the artifact and the point of focus for us as as designers today and that's not without reason you know they're very easy to produce now. We've got more than enough options for how to create them, whether you're Sketch or Adobe or, you know, in you know, now Adobe and Figma, you know, we're team Figma. But, you know, most of the teams that we work in spend the majority of their time and focus and budgets on these most visible parts of the experience. And so designing the visible parts with a clickable prototype makes a lot of sense in that way. But I think the problem is when we stop at the clickable prototype, we ignore some of the most important elements of a service, which is the space between those touch points, you know, what's happening between the screens, and then also what's required to make the service a reality. And so one of the ways that we recommend, you know, getting back to your, your question, that we recommend testing um, to go outside of just the clickable prototype um, to f- work in there what's happening across different channels and across different periods of time uh, there's there's two different ways to think about it. There's the direct experience where if you can actually run a, a pilot program that is as close to the, the reality of how an implemented service would be, that can be the most genuine representation of, of a test that requires a little more coordination. And I can give an example of that where we were working with a, a manufacturing company where they needed a, a, a new way of reaching out to customers to get them to register for the service in order to you know, hook up all the, the data that they would see in their, their dashboard. And so we designed, we, we co-designed with the people that would actually carry this out, uh, a pilot program where they could try this new process with a small subset of customers. You know, it limited the, the risk of it. They still had control over that. It was a very personal thing. It wasn't an automated thing that was going to go off and run on its own. But we co-designed this pilot program and we do daily check-ins just to see how that all played out and what we could learn from it. But it was based on real account reps interacting with real customers. And so it was very genuine reactions. But contrasting that with, you know, because that's not always possible due to, you know, people and, and time constraints. So the other route is, uh, I've heard it referred to as indirect imagination, right? Like you can still do a moderated user test, but 
you can be more intentional about setting up the scenario so that people understand like, you know, this isn't always going to be a totally linear process where you get this email and then you're immediately signing up here. You know, we can ask them to imagine a scenario where, all right, you got this. And now, you know, imagine that some time has passed, you know, you're, you're logging back in uh, on a Monday at work, you know, you can kind of paint the picture and set a scene, help people imagine a scenario just so you can get a little bit more of a sense for what's going to happen in those shifts of context, time and channels. As we run UserList, uh, an email automation platform, there is one layer of things that is completely ignored until like you start implementing, and that is the layer of customer data and tracking the behavior of what people do in the language of properties, events, and like what's what's happening, so that you can orchestrate the interactions. What stage do you plan for those? The ways to understand what exactly the customer is doing or is not doing in the app. I mean, that's one of the the great advantages of quantitative data where we can usually figure out a lot of that up front. And that's, you know, I talked about earlier where we like to start with talking to internal stakeholders so that we can kind of map out the rest of our research agenda and how we expand those circles. In the same way, looking at some of that you know, usually readily available quantitative data, organizations, especially SaaS companies, usually do a, a pretty great job of implementing that right from the start where you can tell the, mm-hmm. the what of a customer is doing right off the bat. And so that can be really interesting to prompt us to then dig into the why. And so if we see like, all right, you know, we can see because we're tracking this kind of data, your customers are getting this far along in the process of, you know, like an an email platform this far in the process of setting up a new campaign, but they're stopping here or, you know, hey, nobody's actually using this new feature or whatever it is, then that gives us the map to say, all right, well, these are the things we need to figure out the why and dig in a little bit further. Interesting. You just used user list as an example customer, but in <laughs> fact, we see, because we're also sort of a service tool for setting up those uh, service processes. So we yeah. um, we work with our customers in a similar way that you're working with, with yours, trying to help them orchestrate their onboarding experience, which is a big challenge, by the way. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, to your point about what can be self-serve and what can't. You know, Mm -hmm. it's hard to expect people to be like totally self-serve email experts consistently, right? Like that's the value of professional services. Definitely, definitely. We talk about human motivation, but there are ways to manage that. And one of the most powerful levers is by uh, by making people pay and the structure of those payments and the timing of those payments. But somehow this aspect is very often neglected in, in like textbook situations and you can only get that kind of advice from fellow founders for example so from your experience how does taking advance payment from from a customer help get them motivated or shall it be refundable and when and shall it be in installments uh, what's your best practice recommendation yeah i can speak to what we've seen in our experience there are people much more knowledgeable on pricing strategy than than i in our experience i mean the earlier the commitment, there's this trade-off, right? And you know, experimentation is, is how you figure out if that trade-off is worth it for your business. But we see this trade-off where that earlier commitment, when people make it past there, they tend to stick around for, for longer. So there's a, a great like longevity and retention to that approach. The, the downside to it, this, you, know, you mentioned product-led growth. 
this is a big part of that, of like removing any barriers to get people on there. That is a barrier. And so you're inevitably with any new barrier that you put up any new little point of friction and payment is a big point of friction, you're going to see a drop off. And so it really depends on what your, your strategy is, what kind of results you're going to drive for your business. Like if you are looking to go more of a product led growth model, then, you know, those kinds of upfront payment barriers um, can be detrimental to, to growth. Um, but that's not true of every, every business. Some businesses need to know that when they're going to invest the kind of resources in onboarding someone and training new customers, you know, they, they put a lot of love and care and attention in every new customer, then they need a little bit more of a, a commitment in order to make that feasible. Another question about motivation is, shall we allow people to do things at their own comfortable pace and timeline because there are many things happening inside their business and inside their team? Or shall we try and somehow influence their behavior? Have you had success, successful case studies when you were able to do that consistently? That's a tricky one too, because I think it comes down to the, the natural tension between customer needs and business goals that we're trying to drive. And there's, you know, there's a happy middle ground to be found, but I think we've all seen where people go too far one side or the other. And, you know, the, the too far on the driving business goals and not caring about user needs is where we see dark patterns show up of like creating false urgency. And like, you know, you're, you're trying to say like, you know, I'm, I'm booking a hotel. There's only one left when there's not really only one left and all these things where you're trying to drive, you're trying to create stress and hurry in customers' lives to drive more profit, right? And that's not good. That that's not a good, good long-term strategy. That's a very like short-term extractive mindset. And that's, you know, not gonna bode well for the long term of a business and a brand. So it's got to be balanced out with your your customers' needs, where just like we were talking about, kind of the, the multimodal different kinds of needs, different customers are gonna have different needs in terms of time. You know, somebody might be reading your your email or like going through an onboarding process and they've got like you know their kids start screaming in the background or like they got to go you know pick up the dog or whatever it is and so i think just being understanding that like you know your customers have more going on in their world than just your product is a good way to start to to view the experience a little more holistically there's one additional question i'd like to uh ask about uh, the financial side of things so are you in favor of paid onboarding or free onboarding? Like, do you think that an onboarding fee is a good thing for a business? In terms of charging a customer to yep. onboard? Yep, to get started versus just starting monthly payments and no special onboarding fee. Yeah. In the examples that I have seen and in our experience and with our clients, it usually tends to make sense to remove any barriers to to onboarding. I know that's much more of a you know product-led growth kind of mindset. It's not shouldn't be true for every business. There are some businesses that need to charge for that kind of onboarding in order to create the kind of experiences they need to create for their customers. But if I had to choose between one or the other, if it's a, a totally binary thing, I would lean towards removing barriers and allowing customers to get in, realize the value of the product before charging. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Sometimes you let them in and they realize the value. Uh, but they can't because it's a blank, blank app and no, nothing has been uh, set up yet. So really leads to frustration versus realizing the value. It's kind of, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough thing of, you know, how do you get them 
because it, it does require them to like, you know, even if they don't need to invest money, they need to invest some time and effort to actually use it, set some things up, um, which, you know, gets them emotionally invested in the product as well. Right. Like there's something to that. But, uh, you know, it, when done well, they're getting an outsized portion of value for their time and effort. Um, and that's the, the start of a good relationship. Absolutely. What are your favorite resources when it comes to service design, mapping, journeys, anything in that department? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, and I'm a member of Service Design Network, global network of service design practitioners. You know, there's also just a lot of great resources. There's, I've got a whole, you know, list of folks that I'm connected with and follow on, on LinkedIn that are great about sharing resources. You know, I should put together a more formal list sometime. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's one of the cool things about, I think, the design industry in, in general um, and service design is, is no exception is just the the wealth of community resources and uh, people figuring new things out and not being afraid to share. Any favorite books? My most recent favorite book, especially as it relates to service design, is a book, I'm going to look behind me just to make sure I get the, the title right, but uh, Good Services by, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing their name right, but uh, Lou Downey. There's been a lot of great writing about service design, you know, there's a whole book series that I, I also enjoy of, you know, service design thinking and, and doing. But what I liked about Lou's book is they go into the principles about like, not, not how to do it, because that's fairly well covered, but what are the elements that make a great service? And it's a you know, great, well-written book, totally recommend it. Fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom today. Where can people find yourself personally and Studio Science online? For me, you can go to justinsluski.com, learn a little bit more about me, see things that I've written, talked about. For Studio Science, go to studiosciencecom um, learn more about us. And then, uh, yeah, anybody that's interested in chatting more about product and service design or if you know, your, your organization would benefit from talking more about that, feel free to reach out to me. LinkedIn is really the only social network I'm active on anymore. So feel free to hit me up there. Thanks so much once again and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks so much. <laughs>